there will be lots of technological innovation, I think, that will um, really kind of help to contribute towards sustainable development. Um, but I also think we need to remember that there's probably about 50 to 60% of the world's population that still don't have access to the internet. One of the things that technology companies has really looked to address that digital divide. Part of the problem is all the terms that we use, we think are really important. So we talk about the circular economy, it means the square root of nothing to the average person sure. at home. Frankly, it needs more investment in infrastructure and mm -hmm. technologies, and it needs to be a harmonisation of different types of materials entering the waste stream, and a common language so people know that certain plastics, certain films, rigid plastics, etc., can be recycled. So mm -hmm. it needs that synthesis on the whole supply chain. I think you've got a, a wave of businesses that have not embraced sustainability starting to look over their shoulder and look to see or dip their feet into the fact that they can do well by doing good. And I quite like in particular sectors, you see one person move and then you see another person go, ooh, maybe mm. we should kind of react and look to either catch up or take it in a different direction. Mm. There's a natural competition there that actually can help kind of drive sustainability. Good morning all and welcome along to part two of this very special edition of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. We're back with a bang and broadcasting live from uh, the second and final day of ED Live here, the exhibition up in Birmingham. Uh, for anyone that missed part one of this episode, I um, thoroughly recommend that you go back and take a listen because we brought you no less than, I think, six, um, maybe even seven um, big interviews with speakers from the various stages here at this um, huge sustainability and energy management exhibition. But now we're, we're back and uh, I'm joined again by the great uh, sustainable business duet that is uh, George Ogilby, our reporter and senior reporter, Matt Mace. How are you doing, guys? Yeah. Um I'd ready, ready to go, you know, yeah. second day, I'm in my stride. Good night's sleep? I did, yeah. Eyes were very heavy when I woke up this morning, but um, no, it's good. Weather's, yeah. you know, weather's nice, sun shining, we're, we're stuck indoors today, but it's fine. It's yeah, fine. Georgia, here you had a bit of a better sleep than the, than the first night when you, I heard oh, Jaeger yeah. bombs were, were, were flowing. Um, I'm going to provide no comment on that, <laughs> but yes, I did have a very good sleep last night. I'm looking forward to today. Good. Well, that's what I like to hear. So, yes, yeah, so certainly set the standard high um, yesterday uh, with all those great interviews, and we've got to carry on that form today. But, Matt and George, um, I've got to break it to you. Um, I'm not going to be reeling in any interviews uh, for this second part of the show. I've got what I think is a pretty valid excuse though because I'm actually on stage for pretty much the entire day chairing two big sessions on the strategy and innovation stage on the topic of megatrends uh, which the ED regulars will have seen that we produced a big report on um, quite recently so it should be a great chat. I'd say that's a, that's a fair excuse. I thought you said you were going to go off to the dinosaur exhibit down the road <laughs> or something. Yeah, no, I'm, uh, yeah I've been uh, summoned so I'm on, on the stage all day. Um, yeah, it was quite nice to, to have the day off yesterday from being on stage but um, got that all day but anyway that leaves it down to you um, to both get out and about on the show floors and see who you can find. So who's going to kick us off today? Uh, I think I'll take the lead this morning. Um, More perky this morning then. Than I am. <laughs> okay good. Bright eyed ready to go. <laughs> so I'm actually going to be speaking to one of the speakers on your stage actually Megatrends. Oh, okay. uh, I've tracked down Stephen Moore from BT. Okay. Um, going to be having a chat about how digitalization and interconnectivity will affect the future of business sustainability and um, also, if I'm lucky, I might be able to track down Nicky Woodhead from Vodafone. Okay. Anyone on your hit list today, Matt? Yeah, um, not till, till later on, but um, I, I'm trying to grab a, a few words with Jo Morant. I spoke to her before the show. Ah, okay. Um, she used to, used to work 
for MS in the kind of recruitment department and has now kind of gone over to the other side, the kind of more consultancy side to help people out with it. So it's okay. really interesting for her to chat Within to. fashion, got, isn't it? Yeah, still Maypine. within fashion, yeah. So she's got um, both sides of the spectrum kind of as her arsenal, so it'd be interesting to chat to her. Okay. And there's a few people um, who I'm going to chase and harry but um, i'm not going to confirm just in case that i come back empty-handed okay well good luck both and i'll see you back here in the ed corner um later on okay so here we are at the start of day two at the strategy and innovation stage and i'm joined by two of the speakers here we've got stephen moore who's the uh, principal consultant of sustainable business at bt and we have nikki woodhead who's the head of environmental management at vodafone how are you both doing today yeah good thank you where have you both come from this morning then hopefully just- not too far i just come up from London, so yeah. Okay. You know, and I've just stayed up the road. Bit of a light in this morning. Not then. too bad, yes. <laughs> so um, we're here on the start of the second day, and I believe you're both going to be talking about uh, digitalisation, interconnectivity, you know, that technology is going to be driving the future for sustainable business. Maybe if you both give a brief summary of the sort of things that you might be talking about uh, in the session ahead, maybe start with you first, Stephen. Yeah, sure. So I think first of all, I'm going to kick off with looking at um, how interconnected we are at the moment in the UK, um, what technologies we've already taken up um, and how uh, evenly spread or unevenly they are. Mm-hmm. Um, also looking at both who is connected and who is who is not connected as well, because I think that's an important consideration for businesses. Um, and then talking about what some of the upcoming technologies we're likely to see are, okay. uh, and giving some um, consideration for what business should be thinking about and for how to integrate those technologies into their business models. Okay. And how about you, Nikki? Um, so I'm going to be taking a little bit more of a global focus um, to match Redfern's footprint. Um, I'm going to be talking about how technology is enabling sustainable development, um, about how Vodafone's products and services are helping to revolutionise access to services such as education, healthcare, financial services for some of the world's poorest communities in those markets where we operate, uh, and the difference that that really is making to people's lives. We've got some really nice case studies to talk about. Okay. Uh, and I'm going to talk a bit about the Internet of Things and our IoT services and how they are helping businesses to operate more efficiently. Uh, thereby reducing energy and fuel consumption and helping to bring down greenhouse gas footprints and tackle climate change. Okay, yeah, and on the point of Internet of Things, uh, it's quite interesting, yesterday we spoke to Suzanne Baker and um, she said to us that Internet of Things hasn't actually moved as quickly as we would have hoped. Is this a a view that you both share? Um, I think it took a little while to take off, but I think we're starting to see real traction and movement. Um, I mean, Vodafone's got 54 million IoT connections now. Mm Um, Cisco are predicting about 50 billion by 2020, uh, kind of sort of globally. So I think in some sectors, the utility sector, looking at smart metering, looking at network management, I think there's a really good take up. Um, Transport, buildings management, some sectors where it's being used really effectively. Um, and I, but I think there are some other sectors where we still have a lot of potential and a lot of um, growth where, where things could make a difference, things like agriculture and healthcare mm-hmm. uh, still to come. And what are your thoughts on that, Stephen? Anything to add? Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And I think, as Nikki was saying, you can see that probably over the next few years, the number of devices that are connected to the internet will overtake the number of people actually to connect to the internet. And I think that will be uh, a key kind of flipping point when we look at how the internet and what it's used for. Um, and we'll start to see, as Nikki was mentioning it, driving benefits in, in a much broader range of sectors than it is at the moment. Mm-hmm. While you're here, Stephen, I thought I'd uh, get you to maybe provide a bit of an update on your three to one um, goal. So you'll 
the aim is to reduce the emissions of your customers by three times the amount of your own carbon impact. I don't know if you if you have an update on how you're doing so far. <laughs> um, I can't give you a, a specific numbered update mm -hmm. um, because we're just about to release our new sustainability ah, okay. report and so the numbers will be detailed in there. Sure. Um, but I can say that it's looking positive. Um, and it's looking like we're making progress towards our three to one target mm -hmm. by 2020, which is great. Um, we also include a measurement of the value of the products and services that are carbon saving. Um, and it's also looking like that has grown significantly over the last year, which, which, which is great and is also another really good sign. And I think signals the fact that there is um, real demand for low carbon products and services. We're seeing that take off. Mm -hmm. And while you're both here, I thought it'd be a good chance to talk about collaboration. So, you know, the whole digitalization um, concept will take a lot of companies working together. Um, we, I actually spoke to uh, PwC. I know that they've got this responsible technology um, platform that they're trying to bring out. And they said they wanted to bring other businesses on board because this, isn't, this isn't, should be pre-competitive. It shouldn't be something that businesses compete against each other. I don't know. Have you... Either company work together on uh, digitalisation before? Well, we quite frequently work together and yeah. with um, a whole host of other companies in the ICT sector. So there's a lot of collaboration that goes on, I think, um, particularly looking at, at kind of sort of standards development and issues of compatibility because that's a really important point moving forwards as we kind of sort of move to greater digitalisation. We need to do it in a way which is coordinated and joined up. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of coordination. Yeah, and Stephen, what are your thoughts on the collaboration in the ICT sector? Yeah, absolutely. I'd agree. Um, I think because it's quite rapidly evolving, but we need to make sure that it's it's um, you know suitable for the user. Um, also, we you know it's there's. Um, we're a member of an, uh, an organisation called the Global E-Sustainability Initiative, and that is very useful for um, highlighting the sustainability benefits of technology. Um, and many large um, technology companies around the world are members of that organisation. Um, and that produced a recent report, um, Smarter 2030, which looked at um, the social and environmental benefits of technology and rolled out to 2030. Um, we also do a lot of collaboration with our supply chain. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about kind of pre-competitive collaboration. Um, uh, Huawei. For for example, are one of our biggest suppliers, and um, we have helped them on their sustainability journey. Um, spent a lot of time, um, you kind of bringing them up to speed with with some of the standards that the high standards that we've set. Yeah. Um, and they found that really useful, and they're now passing that on to their suppliers. So we're seeing that kind of cascade effect as well. So there's there's collaboration in, in all sorts of different forms. Okay. And looking ahead to the future, hundreds of technologies that we could be talking about. You know, IoT is one. You know, blockchain. Um, what do you see as the most exciting development coming in the future of sustainable business in terms of like digitalization in the next sort of 10 to 15 years? Um, that is, that is uh, that's a big question. I think um, perhaps it's not going to be one particular technology. Okay. I think it's the coming together of a lot of the different types of technologies. So, um, you know, cloud and big data mm -hmm. giving much greater insight combined with mobile technology and the likes of 5G that will be coming um, down the line. Um, combined with the Internet of Things and an automation, um, much greater automation, um, as well added in the AI component mm. of that, which will be crucial. Um, so it's, it's 
and then you have also augmented and virtual reality as well. Some of the other things I'll talk about in the in the talk today. So I think it's about how those will be combined in new and interesting ways um, that will really, you know, we'll have some very surprising use cases, I'm sure, that will come out in the, in the coming years. Okay, and Nikki? So yes, I agree with Stephen. There will be lots of technological innovation, I think, that will um, really kind of help to contribute towards sustainable development. Um, but I also think we need to remember that there's probably about 50 to 60% of the world's population that still don't have access to the internet and even the most basic of services. So, you know, I think one of the things that technology companies has really looked to address that digital divide um, first and foremost and, and really kind of sort of provide the sorts of services that we take for granted uh, in Europe um, to the rest of the developing world. Okay. And um, just lastly, is there is there any sort of up-and-coming business or any model that you're looking at and thinking oh yeah we could we could learn some something from this business is there any is there anyone out there you feel like, oh, that they could be a potential game changer in the uh, digital so we're constantly looking at um, new businesses and we actually have technology scouts based out in Silicon Valley okay so they're constantly looking at um, new businesses that are coming up whether they're getting traction and then we actually look to perhaps partner with them or even acquire them. So, um, yeah, we're constantly looking at that and considering what, what might be the next big thing. Okay. And similarly, we have an innovation team um, doing the same sorts of things. Um, quite often it's a case of, you know, uh, the relevant parts of the business just making sure that they're tapped into the right networks and the right stakeholders and just watching for what's coming down the line. Because um, quite often, actually, the, the best developments can come from unexpected places. So um, I think that, that kind of sort of network is particularly important. Definitely. Well, thank you both for taking time out to speak to me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Hopefully the uh, session goes well later. You're in good hands with uh, Luke chairing the session. So have a good day, both of you. Uh, thank you very much. Thank thanks, you. George. Bye-bye. So now we move on to having a chat. I think I'm going to go try and track down Rob Holdway from Giraffe Innovation. He's uh, speaking on the resource efficiency stage. Um, so I'm going to go look out for that. So I'm sitting outside the Resource Efficiency Centre and I'm joined by Rob Holdway, Director of Giraffe Innovation. How are you, Rob? I'm good, actually. Enjoying the show. Uh, great mix of companies and uh, lots of useful insights. It's good to hear, have you here today. You're due to go on stage in the next 20 minutes or so. I believe you'll be talking about the role of design within resource efficiency. I don't know if you want to expand briefly upon that. Yeah, uh, d design's a really important aspect of this because you need to design a product or a service and designers have a very important role to play in this whole, whole debate. Um, also, I just want to say that uh, you can't treat all companies like some homogeneous lump. You know, there's different design strategies, different responses to what they've now called the circular economy. And it's important the design has, an, has a role within that and, and in an appropriate way. Um, the other thing is, your design strategy might be different for an SME, small company, versus a large corporate, yeah. and the resources that are available. So we're just trying to give some granulation to that and, and show what the opportunities are without just giving it this whole, you know, carte blanche, circular economy, uh, generic terms. So we're just trying to give details to that today. Really. Sure. It's quite pertinent in the UK. I mean, the circular economy is yet to fully take off. We've had, I mean, falling recycling rates. And I, I think, you know, the whole thing's been called dysfunctional. Uh, I, I'm just wondering what you think are the main barriers? Why, why hasn't the idea of the circular economy really kicked off yet in the UK? Well, you mentioned recycling rates. I mean, yeah. the, most people talk about the technology of the environment. Yeah. I was talking about technology. We need an anthropocentric approach. So we need a human pr approach to this. So people need to understand the benefits of recycling, need to understand the benefits of reducing carbon emissions in the home and within industry. So part of the problem is all the terms that we use mm. and we think are really important. So we talk about the circular economy. It means the square root of nothing to the average person sure. at home. Um, 
and the average homeowner just wants to know they can segregate their waste, they don't recycle, they segregate their waste and hopefully it's recycled. But frankly, it needs more investment in infrastructure and mm -hmm. technologies, and there needs to be a harmonisation of the different types of materials entering the waste stream, and a common language so people know that certain plastics, certain films, rigid plastics, etc., can be recycled. So, mm. so it needs that whole synthesis between you know, front-end design, engineering, production, manufacturing, supply, and back-end local authorities, uh, recycling, material recycling facilities, etc. So it needs that synthesis on the whole supply chain. Yeah, uh, and it's, it's interesting that you mentioned terminology. People aren't really getting the, or grasping what uh, these terms mean. I suppose, how important do you feel behaviour changes to, get, to make sure that these businesses get on board? Uh, culture within business is everything. You know, the way we do things around here is really important to show the benefits of this. And, you know, we talk about sustainable business. To, to a lot of companies, that just means surviving, mm. you know, revenue profit, you know, potentially growth, unless you're risk averse, etc. But survival is what they're thinking about a lot of the time. Um, so so we, do, we do need to think about a different um, uh, culture change within business to see the sustainability agenda as an opportunity. And for small companies, it might be as prosaic as having an environmental policy so you can supply certain customers. For others, it might be about doing life cycle assessment and actually looking at the whole supply chain risk in there and, and how you actually, you know, Modern Slavery Act even, for mm. instance. So, so there's a whole diffuse range and I don't think it's really helpful to lump everything under the circular economy. Sure. I think we need to give that granulation. And it was here a long time before the circular economy became this, this common term and it'll be a long time uh, around afterwards. So I just think we need that level of detail, good case studies, good examples and good practical things that companies can do without spending a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And I suppose this is where giraffe innovation come in. Maybe for our, our listeners who aren't entirely sure what it is what you do, maybe you could pro uh, provide some information on like the services that you provide. Yes, yeah, so, so, so everything from advising designers on eco-design and what materials they could choose, right through to looking at life cycle assessment yeah. and how you can measure the life cycle impacts and the environmental impacts throughout the whole of the supply chain and what you can do to reduce reduce them. And of course, when you reduce them, there's cost benefits, etc., and maybe um, social benefits in, in the supply chain as well. Um, so so that, that, that's, that's a lot of the work, and environmental product decorations for the construction sector, because you need them to enter certain markets, France, uh, Germany, Netherlands, etc. So a lot of it's about using evidence and environmental science to inform the design process or to inform a particular report they need to have in order to access a market. Mm -hmm. So it's very everything from uh, food products right the way through to lighting So and, and cars. So it's very diffuse and very enjoyable. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. So uh, while you're here, I thought I'd uh, get you to talk about everyone's favourite subject at the moment, the general election. I mean, we can't really <laughs> avoid the subject. For, for you, uh, in the area of resource efficiency, regardless of which government we have, what would, what would be the main priority for you? So, so, so I, I would link it to the industrial strategy, and I, I think it needs much more invest, investment in technology, research and development, ta more tax breaks for investment in R&D and in education. Uh, and I think that, that for me would be the, the, the key thing, to drive the engine of research within mm -hmm. this country, something we're very good at. Mm -hmm. And, and post-Brexit, who knows? Um, but I don't think it's going to be doom overnight. I'm also an associate professor at Brunel uh, University School of Engineering, Design and Physical Sciences. And, you know, I have a view that it is what it is. You get on with it. There's been a referendum. You move on and you do what we're very good at, which is being entrepreneurial and not, not navel-gazing and moaning. Just get on with it. With Brexit, I mean, a lot, I mean, the vast majority of uh, environmental legislation derives from the EU, um, I mean, eco-design labelling. Um, how do you see that panning out and what would be the ideal outcome for you? Well, well, the ideal outcome is, you know, legislation is an opportunity for creativity. It's an opportunity for innovation. 
And if, you, if you're a good company, you're proactive. You go beyond the legislation anyway, so that's what you should be doing. So don't just look at the legislation as a barrier, as a de minimis, you should be going beyond it. And if you're internationally minded, you're going to have to comply with you know, American legislation, uh, you know, uh, Australian legislation, whatever it is. So if you're at sports and you're internationally minded, you're going to have to think about these things anyway and do them. Um, so I, I think as long as we enact the, the right policies and we, we still have a strong environmental agenda, which uh, it's a long time since David Cameron was hugging huskies, isn't it? Um, <laughs> But same time, you know, it's down to business to lead the way and to show leadership, really. Okay. And um, talking about leading the way, is there any particular business models out there that you look at and you think that could be adopted across the industry? You take back models or anything like that. Is there anything you're looking at? I think there's well, there's, there's loads of uh, um, innovative models. Yeah. Um, um, whether they make money or not is 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 another issue. So I I think that what I would say is if you look at someone like Caterpillar, where they have Cat Reman, they also have another main main business. So I think a lot of this is about re-engineering your business strategy. So someone like Caterpillar, Unilever are doing a lot of work, but I still think someone like Interface mm. uh, are still leading the way in many ways with their social products, with their, with their core design uh, principle of biomimicry, that, that it's embedded within their company. They've got a social project, you know, um, next to carpet. And they're now looking at restorative design, which is about embodying um, CO2 as a catalyst within materials as well. So I look at their portfolio of activity. Not only are they doing lots of research, not only are they doing good social sustainability projects, but they're actually investing in R&D and delivering something someone wants to buy. Um, so it's, I, st I still think Interface is one of the companies that's leading the way. Okay, brilliant. Um, thank you for taking time out, Rob. I know that you're Pleasure. about to get on stage, so I'll let you get off. So um, now I'm going to hand over to Matt, who I believe is over at the on-site Generation Theatre. Thank you, George. I have been running around like a, a madman for, for the last few hours, popping in on all the kind of theatres just to see what's happening. And I have managed to grab a speaker. I'm now sat with Philip Bazin, uh, the Environmental Manager for Tridos Bank. Philip, thank you very much for agreeing to have this chat. Um, Pleasure. I did just grab you from the uh, Energy Management Theatre didn't have the uh, pleasure of actually sitting in on your session so I suppose to start um, what were you talking about today and what kind of insight have you taken away from that session? Uh, so the, the main the main thrusts of my talk were really exploring what's the current state of uh, the landscape for investment in renewables in the UK and and how what are the challenges uh, for, for developing projects going forward and investing in, in projects which won't have the benefit of subsidies and whether or not there are actually some good ideas out there that are already in existence that can be used to help mitigate some of the risks and the challenges with subsidy-free projects. And, and how is that being, being viewed in, in, in the sector? I mean, we, we get a lot of comment and pushback from organisations like the Renewable Energy Association who clearly want subsidies in place. Is, is it the state of play where renewables can perform without these now? Well, I think it's important on the point about uh, the sector as a whole. The sector as a whole recognises the fact that it needs to learn to live without subsidies. And I think its arguments are that it will do so, but it's not quite ready. And therefore, in order to continue on the path, it, it needs mechanisms that can support uh, the projects for another three, four years. That being said, there are existing projects that have been already developed, where planning applications have already been built. Uh, so I think some of these sites will be built out using some of the structures that I discussed in, uh, in, my, in my talk, primarily sort of private wire arrangements where you're selling, you're electrically connected to your consumer and you're selling directly to them at a price which is well above the wholesale price of electricity. Um, and also by looking at things quite differently. So rather than saying I need 
I'm looking at a 25-year time horizon. The economic life of assets like solar assets now are being looked at as 40 years. So, you know, if you can take a longer-term view and if you can uh, drive down the costs and you can be smart about how you procure, um, and you can work with the, the right partner to buy your power over the longer term. Um, the, it's very, looking very much like you know, well-sited projects with good renewable resource uh, will be built out uh, subsidy-free in inverted commas. But the problem is you know, the UK needs uh, gigawatts of capacity. And I think, uh, unfortunately, even if you get to the point where um, you know, you, you, the costs are where they're at, you're still facing a significant issue, which is the fact that if you're just selling wholesale power into the grid, wholesale electricity prices are driven by commodity prices, and that volatility in commodity prices creates a long-term uncertainty, which is very unhelpful for uh, driving down the cost of your capital uh, and providing that stability. So I think there is a there has to be some recognition that ultimately uh, the, these energy assets are strategically important to the UK and it's not just about the economics but it's also about ensuring that you know we provide a framework to continue to decarbonize which ultimately is what's going to be required to achieve our, our climate change commitments. So, um, so what steps need to be taken to, to kind of unlock these financial revenue streams to to kind of push to push them back towards these uh, renewable projects now that the costs are starting to fall? Well, I think the main point is not so much to... Uh, we need to in increase the revenue streams a little bit above wholesale prices, but I think the key issue is stabilising the revenue streams. If you can bring that stability, that long-term stability to the revenue profile, then you will actually make your project a far more investable asset class. And that will attract the low cost of capitals from the likes of the pension funds, you know, who are prepared to provide capital over long periods of time at very low costs. Okay, and so what um, what kind of advice would you give to companies that are that are looking to get hold of these kind of loans, investments, and and get hold of this capital? Is this about them uh, being completely transparent with their operations? Say we might not have all the solutions for this project. How how what's the best way for them to go about it? Well, so in, in my talk, I talked about uh, two types of, of uh, structures for selling your power. So um, I think ultimately, if you're coming today with a, a strategy which is just to sell wholesale power to the grid, you're going to struggle to get much debt off any lender. So really what I would say is I would want to see that any project coming forward has had uh, a well-developed and quite a, a good strong level of commitment from a buyer for their power. So if they're coming with uh, either a sleeve PPA arrangement with a large corporate or a private wire arrangement, we'd want to see that heads of terms had been agreed uh, so, so that we can you know, give, give the numbers that we use to generate uh, indicative terms to our borrowers uh, some credence uh, and to give our, ultimately our customers the comfort uh, knowing that you know they've got an offer which will then allow them to progress with their business case going forward. So the key thing is that strong engagement and really having a commercial deal with a party to buy the power. Okay, and I suppose um, obviously you, you kind of focus in on renewable investment, but um, yeah. as a um, the finance sector looking at companies aiming to be more sustainable, be more sustainable as a whole. 
How how are they doing that? They, is this then they're now actively choosing to want to work with these type of companies that will push towards these renewable projects? Or yeah, so uh, part of our business uh, as a bank is we also manage funds. So we have a trade-offs investment manager who are uh, an active fund manager who invest in companies that uh, are either you know in sectors that are viewed as sustainable or they are in the top 25% uh, of their sectors from an ESG score. So uh, we've done some analysis trying to see how these businesses that have got strong uh, environmental, social uh, policies around their business plans and how they perform relative to those that don't. I think it's fair to say that you know there is a bit of evidence now to show that they do, they will perform better and certainly uh, whilst I'm not a fund manager myself, um, the, the, there's a whole point around risk and resilience of your business plan that I, I think uh, suggests that most fund managers would, would uh, look more favorable at businesses that are thinking strategically in that way. Okay, so the, the key is strategic thinking then. That's, yes. They've got to have the whole kind of yes. eye on all the scopes. Okay, that's brilliant. Um, Philip, thank you uh, very much for your time. I'm going to run off now and see if I can find someone else to grab to interview before we uh, inevitably close and it all starts shutting down so thank you very much for your time and enjoy the rest of the show thank you i almost went home defeated i didn't think i could find anyone else to chat to but we're we're approaching the end of the day and i've managed to grab hold of joe morant um from made by now joe we've spoken uh, before on um on a feature article for ed actually um in the build-up to this i haven't actually had a chance to um sit in on your in on your last kind of seminar so so what was the kind of theme what was the kind of reaction to it all yeah uh, so we talk about miscasing materials risk and supply chain transparency so um i talked a lot around the fashion industry specifically and why supply chain transparency is important so i went through a few facts in terms of um, you know water usage chemical usage uh, a bit around fashion revolution which i'm sure lots of you have heard of um, around consumers calling brands to action in terms of being more transparent about where they're sourcing from. And then I talked quite a lot around what Made By doing, so how we're supporting brands, how we can help them become more efficient and really address their strategy in terms of mitigating risk, in terms of fibres, so you know whether it's cotton or you know whatever their biggest fibre mix is, how can they address that and try and reduce risk in their supply chain but actually realising that it's not just as specific as one fibre. So if you take cotton as an example, we're not just talking about cotton, you, you know, there's the whole ecosystem around it, there's the water usage, there's the community, um, transport, production. So how do you look at all of those together and how do you, without making it a huge project, how can you kind of take off bite-sized pieces and yeah, try and reduce the risk to your supply chain, really. I imagine your work at Made By is, is quite refreshing in that sense that it is so broad. Because um, the interesting thing about you is obviously you, you used to work in the kind of fashion industry yeah. with, with Marks & Spencer and their procure team. So yeah. how, how is the, the, like, the job different? Uh, how, does it, how does it differ in that sense? Yeah, so I was a buyer for quite a long time at Marks & Spencer's. Um, really enjoyed it in terms of actually just getting to know supply chains mm. and how products were sourced, bought, um, and I think it's really helped now in terms of uh, I can talk to brands and really understand the issues. Um, you know, I've been there, I've done it. I understand that it's not as easy as just switching from one material to another. And it's a much bigger project than just calling a supplier and saying, oh, I don't want conventional cotton now, I want organic cotton. Well, 
there are so many issues and so many challenges around that. Um, it can be done, but you know, actually, really understanding the supply chain and where you're sourcing from, um, I think has really helped in yeah being able to actually talk to brands knowledgeably about what they're doing and hopefully guide them in the right direction. Uh, I imagine that's, that's key as well. We were actually um, I was sitting in on a on a water seminar uh, yesterday, so completely unrelated fashion yeah. in that sense. But um, they were talking about how. Um, in making improvements to water efficiency and stuff, getting a third, like an independent set of eyes really helped, but that actually the companies didn't really want people to come in and tell them how to do their job. So how, how influential and how important has that knowledge been in getting that message across at times? Yeah, definitely. I think you're right. I mean, I can't go to a marketing team and tell them how to do their job mm. because ultimately I don't know that much about marketing. So I think it's actually being realistic and quite honest about what you do know and what you don't know. Um, so we, the brand, we've got a huge amount of expertise in our team um, which varies from the social side right through to the environmental um, and obviously my experience in buying. So actually being really clear about what our expertise is and actually how we can help the brands and being very upfront with them around how we can support them and what our expertise is. And if we don't know, then actually pointing them in the right direction. So we work with lots of other organisations that maybe have, um, maybe there might be an area that a brand wants to look at that maybe we're not necessarily the experts, but we can partner with someone else or we can maybe suggest other people. Um, so yeah, not trying to do things that we can't, I think is really important. Um, and actually meeting people that we're working with where they are. So understanding brand, understanding what they're about, you know, are they just interested in compliance? Are they interested in being world leading? And actually really listening to them. Hmm. I think um, I was at a talk actually the other day by uh, Steve Howard from Ikea. Okay. And he said, um, someone said to him, I think, you know, you have two ears and one mouth, which says a lot, you hmm. know, actually you've got to listen. Um, so really listening to the brands and understanding where they are, because it it would be very easy for us to go to lots of brands and tell them all to do the same thing, but ultimately that's not going to work because they're all different, they all source different products and they've got very different strategies. So I think, yeah, really listening and understanding where they are is really important. I mean, you mentioned listening and that's clearly key. And I suppose internally as well, when we had our, our chat yeah. beforehand, you mentioned that kind of joined up approach was key. Yeah. A lot of um, retailers in recent months and years, I suppose, have been stung by the supply chains with, um, I suppose, Rana Plaza, you've got um, the, the Syrian kind of refugee stuff going on as well. So in terms of a sustainability department or team communicating the importance of this to their procurement, what kind of advice would you give? Very difficult one. Yeah. Um, I think there, there are some organisations doing some great things. I think in some organisations, sustainability has traditionally sat quite separately. and. I know like Plan A is a great example, so everybody in MS knows about Plan A and although there's still work to do in terms of integrating it, they're doing a really, really great job in terms of engaging the right people. Um, and I think, yeah, I guess my advice would be actually meet people in the right place. So if you're talking to a marketing team, they are not going to be interested in the stuff that procurement team is going to be interested in. You know, a buyer ultimately wants to know, are you going to cause them more work? Is it going to be cheaper? How do I not do... Um, you know, how do I not increase my workload? Um, so you need to basically sell it to them as a, you know, you've got to have a business case. And obviously the business case for sustainability, I think everybody knows it's, you know, relatively straightforward. And I think I think you've got to speak in their language as well. So mm. I think having obviously been on that side and moved into sustainability when I first started, <laughs> there are a lot of things that I didn't know, a lot of acronyms, a lot of terms I didn't understand. So I think being very clear about 
you know, talking layman's terms, um, so sustainability team, what are the three things they're going to be interested in and how can they incorporate it into their job? Um, I think make it very easy for them. Hmm. The easier you can make it and the more straightforward it is for it just to become business as usual, then they actually own it and they drive the sustainability because ultimately everyone in the business needs to be responsible for it rather than the sustainability team. Uh, they're there to maybe oversee it from a top level point of view and keep an eye on what everybody's doing, but they shouldn't necessarily be driving it every day. It should be every every buyer, mm. every person in product development team, um, because they're the ones that are buying the product. Um, so I think they're the ones that make the final decision. So it's it's yeah. I, I suppose it is. It is inter- interesting. There's always a danger when you talk to sustainability professionals who are talking to other sustainability professionals. Yeah. It becomes a bit of an echo chamber, I suppose. Yeah. And yeah. like you said, the, the language can can get a bit lost. But I suppose by bringing other departments in, it's key. Um, yeah. Funny enough, back to that water one. I said that yesterday. Yeah. IHG, the the hotel group, they've actually linked their their performance of their water use to their financial officers' yeah. uh, K- KPIs, which is yeah. such a such a huge thing. And I perhaps I'm being a bit harsh on on the fashion industry. I'm, there's definitely leaders in that bit, but um, I always feel the I always feel it's the case that perhaps they're still driven by that kind of fast fashion aspect mm. of sell, sell, sell. Um, yeah. Is that is that a consumer demand thing? Should there be different types of models? I mean, there are different types of models out there, but should they be more mainstream? Yeah. I think it's a real challenge. I think um, there's a lot around now about new business models, and I know we get challenged on it a lot because we talk about some of the bigger we talk about some of the bigger fashion brands who are doing some great sustainability stuff as examples, but some of them may be classed as what you'd call fast fashion, and there are some people uh, that would maybe say is that not part of the problem rather than the solution? Now, you could probably sit and debate that for hours um, and who knows what the right answer is, but I think the most important thing is that they're doing something. Yeah, I I think it's a challenge. I think in some respects the fashion industry is way behind um, some other industries, especially when you look at how the food industry has transformed in the Mm. last few years. Um, I think it's becoming better, it's becoming more normal with you know people publishing data and maps. Um, there's been, I think Tesco published theirs last week um, of their list of their factories. So I think people are becoming more aware because consumers are asking for it. I think ultimately you're never going to solve the consumer problem because that's a, that's a, a much bigger problem mm. in the fashion industry. But I think brands could be more responsible in educating their consumers maybe, but also editing what they're selling maybe. Okay. Um, but that's not as easy for every retailer as it maybe sounds. Um, you know, if you're going to sell products, maybe use more sustainable fibres. Can you, you know, a lot of brands now have take-back schemes. So they are trying to close the loop in terms of looking at recycling fibres. There's a lot of work going on. Um, I think Patagonia are working on a project and a few other brands in terms of how recycling f- uh, mixed fibres. Hmm. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of work going on. I think the consumer problem and... The, it's probably a slightly separate one because I don't think the brands can solve that on their own but I think they could there's a lot of work that could be done and has been done in terms of editing what they're what they're selling and I mean I mean the good thing about it is that, like you said the work's clearly being done and yeah. and usually like we like you've seen with the food sector it does bear fruit so yeah, exactly. you'd imagine in the next year or so there'd be a real kind of transition to this more yeah. kind of sustainable way definitely I think and uh, I know the Cotton 2040 pledge has just been launched a few days ago so I know brands like M&S uh, obviously Forbes the future involves in that you know which is another great example of collaboration so we've seen lots of um, 
kind of collaborative initiatives in the last few years. And I think the more of those that happen and the more that brands realise that in that pre-competitive uh, space, they can share information and it's okay. <laughs> uh, it's not, you know, they're not sharing sales data. They're not telling them what their next collection is going to look like. Uh, the more the brands can do that, the, you know, the more pressure they can put on maybe the supply chains to understand where their product's coming from and actually build those relationships. Um, it becomes a lot easier. Um, yeah. And um, obviously, Maybuy does a lot of work with. Um, it can do very specialised work with these brands. I I'm, I know you've got the, the, the tracker and whatnot, but there's um, there's also stuff uh, in regards to, I suppose, the more ethical aspects rather than sustainable. Yeah. So uh, chemical detoxes, yeah. um, I suppose. And I know um, like fur is always going to be a big one. Is, is there yeah. a kind of is there a kind of area um, where you see we'll, we'll get the biggest movement from campaigners in, in the next few months or so? Is there an area that's about to really come into the spotlight? Um, I think something that's been brewing for a while, which is already happening, is the leather side of mm-hmm. things. So obviously a formation of the leather working group um, who are doing some work around, uh, they've got a standards now. Um, there's another um, company called, uh, that have just launched a standard as well. And I think there's there's lots of questions being asked um, around the leather supply chain. I think that is the question we probably get asked the most at the moment, probably. Um, and I think that will gather pace. I think lots of brands have been focusing historically on their biggest fibres, which have been, you know, cottons, mm. natural fibres, synthetics. Um, and yeah, I think the leather supply chain is kind of gathering place. I think that's probably the biggest one. I think detox, uh, obviously with the Greenpeace campaign, mm-hmm. there's been a lot going on. Um, there's still a lot of work for brands to do. More brands are signing up to um, be part of ZDHC, which is great. Um, I think that will continue. Um, I think, yeah, I think that's probably it, really. I mean, I think, yeah, on the social side of things, obviously we've had the Mon Slavery Act, so it's going to be really interesting the next, I'd say, six to 12 months in terms of what brands are doing. So the conversations we have with brands around what they're doing, linking social and environmental together, and actually just seeing in the industry generally what brands are doing um, and how they're performing against their KPIs. Um, I think that's going to be a really interesting one as well. Okay, well, I think rather criminally that round of applause we just heard wasn't for us for some reason, <laughs> but I think it was more the fact yeah. that um, the last kind of session's finished, so I don't want to keep you too long and I'm wary as well that when this place shuts down it does quickly and very loudly, which doesn't quite resonate well on a podcast. So, um, Joe, thank you very much for your time. And um, I'm now going to reconvene with Luke and George back at our temporary home, which is Edie Stand, because I believe our editor, fresh from a day of uh, chairing the Megatrends um, panel, has brought a rather special guest along, so stay tuned. Yes, well, thank you very much for that last interview, Matt. And we have actually made our way over to the strategy and innovation stage um, because for one last time, we are back here together at the end of ED Live, day two. It's expecting a bit of a, oh, there, a concerted, oh. It feels like end of Lord of the Rings and they just got to the end of Mount Doom. It's, it's, it's there, the journey's over. I think everyone's a bit tired. Um, Matt and George are both here. Um, and I'm actually rather proud because I've managed to pull in a, a final interviewee for the for the day, reeled in a, a big fish in the sustainability pond that is uh, John Koo um, from Interface because we were just joined together on um, on stage actually. So your innovation partner there at Interface, how are you doing? Good, thank you. I'm feeling I'm very I'm feeling a wave of optimism. Yeah, it's you... been great to, to hear the solutions and how other businesses are tackling uh, the challenges of sustainability and how 
instead of just talk, we're really seeing great examples of walk too. Yeah, well, that's interesting because, you know, in that session we were just in, you were talking about the fact that many companies are now beginning to, you know, walk the walk on sustainability, but there's still a lot of companies that aren't, you know, you've got your, in, your interface now in that group that we always talked about now with them when we write about them on an almost daily basis, interface, m and um, yourselves. Is there, do you get the vibe that there is more of a, a kind of a new wave of sustainable businesses coming through? I think you've got a, a wave of businesses that, that have kind of not embraced sustainability, starting to look over their shoulder and look to see or dip their feet into the fact that they can do well by doing good. So I think that's, I quite like when, and I won't name any companies, okay. in particular sectors, you see one person move and then you see another person go, ooh, maybe mm. we should kind of react and look to, to, to either catch up or take it in a different direction. Mm. There's a natural competition there um, that actually can help kind of drive sustainability in better. Yeah, it's quite interesting when you break it down by market as well, in that mobile phone market, we just had Rhea Horlock on stage from O2. Um, that was really interesting just to see what one company there is doing and how that's actually sparking quite broad change across the industry, not just in terms of what businesses and people are doing within the industry, but actually almost like a mindset, like a philosophy that's beginning to change due to the, the work that companies like O2 are doing. I mean, what really impressed me with Rhea's talk and O2's approach is how holistic it is. Yeah. Um, in the same way that I spend a lot of time trying to explain that the influence that carpet can have, I mean, in terms of whether it was reuse, connectivity, whether it was, you know, education, it's great to see the work that O2 have been doing. Yeah. And I also would say, you know, within that phone market with Vodafone and their work with M-Pesa around kind of mobile banking, and again with, with EE as well, it's, it's just interesting to see whole sectors driving forward. Um, I mean, Equally away from the talk, there's so much great work in a pre-competitive front, mm. whether it's, um, I'm not sure whether it's communications, but in the fashion industry, great to be hearing about some great strides forward yeah. there. Um, maybe sometimes we don't always see how deep that impact is. Mm. It's something that I think I'm very excited to, to see. In events such as ED Live, Maybe that's where some of the, those conversations start. Yeah, well, completely. And they have been happening over the last couple of days. And um, they are now literally taking ED Live apart around us. So we'll have to um, speed this up. But um, Matt, George, I mean, just final reflections then on, on, the, on the show. I mean, any particular highlights from you over the two days, Matt? I've, I've developed uh, a, a weird appreciation for, for water management that I didn't quite knew I, I ever possessed. Um, <laughs> I've sat in on a few, few seminars related to, to water management and the business case for it and how it just interacts with energy and climate and I suppose in the broadest sense you think of sustainability, you think of green, water is one of those things that get pushed to the side maybe a little bit but True. it's it's amazing the business opportunities there and to the point where I don't think, I can honestly say uh, I've, uh, events and cinemas I sit into I've never sat on a dull water one there's always something I've learned that genuinely fascinates That's me. interesting yeah. yeah we have to get you more on, on the water side yeah, of things exactly, our yeah. correspondent. George anything to stand out for you? Um, well this afternoon I've been sitting in a few seminars to do with green transport uh, what okay. the future of mobility will look like and um, some fascinating concepts you know you've got connected vehicles vehicle to grid concepts you know even like the hyperloop capsules running up 800 miles an hour. I don't think I want to be the first person to try one of those. But uh, it's actually speaking uh, to Uber as well. You know, they've got that whole sharing economy concept of the Uber pool. And that's something that's, that could really take off in the future. Um, yeah, so 
Green transport. Seem to have found your new favourite patches <laughs> when we return to the office. Okay, well, um, thank you, John, for joining us so thank late in the day guys. here. Um, and must also say a big thanks to you both, Matt and George, for holding the fort today and getting all those interviews. Um, and so the show's over. Um, so ED Live has come to an end, and so is this episode of Sustainable Business Covered. Um, but don't fear, we're uh, not going away for a couple of months like we did last time. We're going to be back in a fortnight with a, actually a brand new format. Um, which you've devised for us, Matt, haven't you? Yeah, I, I have. I don't want to. I don't want to spoil it all. But um, prepare to enter the green room. Enter the green room. Is this yep. what it's called? Enter the. Well, enter no, just the green room. Just but the green you'll, you'll room. You'll be entering okay. with me. Um, we're going to sit down with um, some of the kind of sustainability leaders um, and really kind of get to know them on a on a personal level. Hmm. Well, plenty to look forward to then. Okay then. Um, so thank you to everyone for listening and from all of us here at ED Live 2017. It's goodbye. 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 goodbye.